Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. And may they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. When serving communion, one is always a little bit fearful of making a mistake. This is a sacred act, one of only two sacraments in our particular tradition, the other being baptism. I will confess that messing up a baptism is even worse. One need only recall the time that I baptized three babies at once and handed them all back to the wrong parents to see what I mean. When celebrating communion, the worst thing you can really do is trip over your words, which is a little embarrassing, but of no real consequence, at least not for most of us. But a curious thing supposedly happened in a small Italian town about 800 years ago. In the parish of Bolsena, a Catholic priest was presiding over communion, and according to local legend, at the very moment that he consecrated the host, he began to doubt the presence of Christ in the elements. Just then, as the story goes, the host began to bleed, a few drops spilling onto the corporal, the cloth beneath the communion chalice, staining it red. The corporal of Bolsena, as the stained cloth has come to be known, has been preserved for centuries in a reliquary in the Cathedral of Orvieto, where believers can behold its mystery. No one knows for certain if it's truly the blood of Christ on the corporal, or, or if some have suggested a few drops of red wine that may have spilled from the chalice. Regardless, the legend conveys a fundamental truth, namely that there is power in rituals, even if we're inclined to doubt some of their more supernatural consequences. In our tradition, rituals are sacred, but they are not magic. They are signs that point us to higher realities, but they don't alter the fabric of this reality. I sometimes envy people of faith who believe that their rituals produce almost magical results, for a lack of a better word. Catholics believe that baptism produces an ontological change in the soul. Pentecostals believe, when they are speaking in tongues, that they are uttering angelic languages and channeling the raw power of the Holy Spirit. In the Jewish mystical tradition, pious rabbis and sages have long engaged in the practice of theurgy, magical rituals designed to summon angels or create holy artifacts or even ascend the ladders of heaven in the flesh. According to one such rabbinic legend, Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidic Judaism, nearly completed a ritual that brought the Messiah to earth. One day while he was praying with his brethren, he focused his concentration, not only praying and meditating upon every word that he spoke in his prayers, but upon every letter of every word, reciting each of them in turn over and over and over again. The others finished praying long before him, 
leaving the room one by one. And many days later, he emerged, claiming to have ascended to heaven on a ladder of prayers. It was filled with a song of indescribable beauty that emanated from a golden dove. The Messiah, Baal Shem Tov claimed, was fixated upon it. And so the sage determined that if he could steal this golden dove from the halls of heaven and return to earth with it, the Messiah would be compelled to follow him. But like so many of us, his mystical experience came to an abrupt end with the thing that he sought just beyond his reach. I ascended higher, he claimed, until I was within arm's reach of the golden dove. But as I reached for it, the ladder of prayers collapsed. The prophet Elijah makes it look so easy. He builds an altar out of some rocks. He digs a trench around it, cuts up some wood and a sacrificial bull, and douses the whole thing in water. Just like that, God sends down the fire, a blaze from heaven that ignites everything in a spectacular display of divine power. But in truth, achieving a mystical experience or a divine encounter can be enormously difficult. Take the priests of Baal, the Canaanite storm god that Elijah defeats in this ritualistic contest. Elijah and these priests are competing with one another to determine whose god is more powerful, and the priests of Baal are trying everything under the sun to summon their deity. They cry out for hours. They cut themselves with knives and limp around their altar with hoarse voices and bleeding wounds. But nothing happens. Whether they failed to encant the proper verses, failed to draw the proper symbols in the earth with their blood, or whether their god, Baal, simply does not exist, is open to one's interpretation of the story. But the implication seems to be that Yahweh, God of Israel and Elijah, is real and Baal is not. Their intention is misplaced, flawed, focused on the wrong deity. Here, the specifics of the ritual, the words spoken, the symbols produced, the liturgy employed, they matter less than the intention in the hearts of these priests. There's another well-known story in the Jewish rabbinic tradition, similar to the one I mentioned earlier, about four sages who arrive at the pearly gates. No, this is not a joke, like the one about the four rabbis on the golf course who get into a theological dispute. In the joke, three of them are in disagreement with the fourth, who cries out to God for a sign that he is correct. Just then, a lightning bolt strikes a nearby tree, splitting it in two. Well, one of the other rabbis tells him, that's still three against two. No, the four sages in this legend have a lot more at stake than a simple argument. You see, it's said that they each attempted to ascend the various layers of reality via ritual and prayer to gain access to the highest heaven. They were all successful to a degree, but most of them paid a terrible price. 
The first, Ben-Azai, died when his body could not endure the celestial glory. The second, Ben-Ahur, beheld the angels and thought that they were other gods, shattering his faith and turning him into a heretic. The third, Ben-Zoma, simply went mad. He was later found wandering the countryside, muttering to himself, Ben-Zoma is no more. Only the fourth sage, Ben-Akiva, ascended in peace and returned in peace because his intention was pure. In my own prayer life, I find that attempts to commune with God are thwarted when I don't bring the proper intentions. When I come to God demanding specific outcomes, letting my ego drive the conversation, I'm only met with cold silence. But when I meditate and pray with the sole intention of listening and nothing more, I sometimes hear a voice that is not my own, penetrating my thoughts. The skeptic would say I'm tapping into my own subconscious or just imagining things. People can believe whatever they want. But that voice has always led me when I follow it, towards wisdom. I saw a deeply affecting movie last year about rituals. It was called A Dark Song, and it was about a woman named Sophia whose young son has been murdered. In a desperate attempt to speak with him again, she hires an occultist named Joseph Solomon to lead her through a months-long ritual it will supposedly summon an angel who will allow her to commune with her son's spirit. The film has the trappings of a horror movie. The woman has to spend several months in a creepy old house with this stranger, Solomon, who could be the real deal or a shady huckster. They spend their days drawing sigils on old hardwood floors, reciting verses from ancient grimoires, meditating and praying for hours on end. Solomon subjects her to various ritual torments like dousing her in freezing water or making her fast for days on end. As the story drags on and they develop a small bit of trust, Sophia confesses that her real aim in participating in this ritual was never to speak to her son at all, but rather to ask for divine vengeance upon his killers. After expressing this ill intent, things begin to go sideways. Solomon perishes in a freak accident. Sophia begins to be haunted by shadowy specters around the house. And yet, against all odds, she manages to complete the ritual on her own. The house is filled with a brilliant glow emanating from the attic as Sophia climbs the stairs to find its source. The entire room is filled with a striking presence, an effervescent angel in armor, radiating a glorious light. The genie is out of the bottle, and Sophia is faced with a choice about what to ask of this heavenly creature. But in that moment, bathed in pure love, she does not ask for vengeance. She does not even ask to speak to her son again. She asks the angel with 
tears running down her face, for the power to forgive. Forgiveness, she realizes, is the only thing that will ever bring her peace. It's more powerful than the ability to speak to the dead, more powerful than divine retribution, more powerful than fire raining down from heaven. It is really a kind of magic. Our holy rituals, the sacraments of baptism and communion, the songs we sing in church, the liturgies we partake in, the preaching and the hearing of God's word, this is where the magic happens. This is where we bring our whole selves and our loving intention and where we are imbued with the power to forgive, the power to love our enemies, the power to imagine a different world. Mercy, justice, compassion, these are the kinds of powers bestowed upon us in this ritual. Just because there are no brilliant displays of light or spontaneous acts of combustion or blood dripping upon the communion table, that does not mean that there isn't power here. There's a well-known quote by the spiritual writer Annie Dillard who says, On the whole, I don't find Christians, outside of the Roman catacombs, sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke. Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? Well, as I said before, folks can believe what they want. But here, there is power in ritual. Here there is a kind of magic. This is where we gather. This where we pray. This is where God sends down the fire. Amen.